Theologically speaking, I know that religion has caused a lot of shame in people. The church has given people messages that have caused them to feel ashamed of their desires, their bodies, their orientation. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. We are going into a new and unknown but very exciting chapter. I'm not sure I've had more exciting news ever for BBXX than to let all of you know that we are officially launching our online platform. The BBXX platform is the hub for all things intimacy and relationships. It is your go-to resource from a database of content that you can filter based on if you want to read, watch, listen, a database of key players in this industry, from experts to brands and organizations, companies we like and believe in their work to give you a BBXX certified stamp of approval, an online store featuring products and services, and most importantly, a community of curious and engaged people like you who aren't afraid to ask the difficult questions who want to dig deep, who want to put in the work and a better understanding themselves so that they can live deeper connections and more fulfilling relationships with other people as a result. So I am unbelievably excited to bring all of this to you. There is a free membership and there are premium membership levels, which include discounts on products and services, bonus content, affiliate opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And most importantly, discounts on coaching. Because along with the BBXX platform, we are launching BBXX Coaching with yours truly, a certified life and relationship coach here to help you design and achieve the life you want and deserve, but are perhaps too afraid to find out whether it's possible or not. Through coaching, we will dive deep into understanding you, understanding the obstacles getting in the way of you living that life you want, and create goals and roadmaps to help you achieve them. I'm currently working with clients on anything from wanting to stop drinking, going after a promotion at work, wanting to better connect with people in their experiences with dating and finding a meaningful partnership, working through issues in a current relationship or getting through a breakup. So if you'd like to find out more about how to go after the wonderful things that might scare you and how to take everything you might have learned or faced or struggled with in 2020 and harness that power towards making 2021 the best year of your life yet, I'd invite you to book a discovery call with the link in the description of this podcast episode by emailing me at Sasha, S-A-S-Z-A, at bbxx.world, or 
checking out the link in bio in our Instagram account to book a free 30-minute discovery call with me to see if coaching might be a good fit for you. We're here to understand the relationship between religion, in this case specifically Christianity, shame, sexuality, and liberation. In today's interview, we are joined by Nadia Boltz Weber, the author of the book Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. Nadia is an ordained Lutheran pastor and founder of the funkiest, freest, freakiest, and most fun church you've ever heard of, the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She is the host of the podcast, The Confessional, and the author of three New York Times bestselling memoirs, Pastrix, The Cranky Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People, and Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. She writes and speaks about personal failings, recovery, grace, faith, and really whatever the hell she wants to. She says that the prayer, please help me not be an asshole, is about as common as any other prayer in her life. And she always sits in the corner with all the other weirdos. Let's get weird and let's get intimate. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am really excited to talk to you and share your perspective, your work, your jokes with our audience. And although I normally start asking people how they came to be doing the work that they do today, I definitely want to get to that. But I wanted to kind of just jump in hot right off the bat and ask how you would describe shame and the voice of shame and the ways in which it can be dangerous or damaging. Oh, yeah. That was a slow one right across the plate. (laughs) It's funny. I was talking to my best friend this morning, as I do almost every morning. She was describing an experience of shame she was having, and I'd never even thought of it like that. But everything's just like no one's doing well right now. And I try and remember that when people are horrible online. And she just got caught up in some conversation in her neighborhood online. And she is the most reasonable, grace-filled, mature voice you can imagine. And that's not rewarded in online conversation. (laughs) Neither is nuance both of which she offered and then was immediately punished for it. And all these really ridiculous comments coming her way. And she said every time her mind would wander to it, you know how when something happens and you are you don't think about it for a minute, but immediately your mind wanders to it and your body has a flush reaction? She goes, it was just, I'm just, it's like filled with shame every time I think of it. And I'd never thought of that experience as being, that's, because you're feeling shame. You know, you have a conflict, somebody's mad at you. And every time you think of it, your body has a reaction. Everything feels sort of warm and flush. That's one experience of of shame. But I, since I'm a theologian, theologically speaking, I know that like religion has caused a lot of shame in people the church has given people messages that have caused them to feel ashamed of their desires, their bodies, their orientation, everything about themselves, their sexuality, especially. And I think that what we see like in the Garden of Eden story is that what's interesting about that story, because I think origin stories, origin myths are really important for our understanding of ourselves in the world and others. So even if you don't believe it to be literally true, it's still very informative about how we see ourselves in the world. And so if you look at the Genesis story, it says that Adam and Eve were actually naked and unashamed in the garden. They didn't even have any clothes on. And it says like 
they were unashamed. And then what happened is they listened to a voice other than God's um, tell them what they should be doing, who they could be, what they, you know, all of these different messages, talking shit about God, you know, all this stuff. And so all of a sudden shame kind of entered in. And it says, you know, they were like, they, they were hiding from God and God goes, Hey, uh, where are you guys? And they said, well, we're naked. And so we're ashamed and we're afraid of you. And, and God goes, wait, hold on. Who told you you were naked? And I'm like, well, shit, my money's on the snake. I'm pretty sure it was the snake, right? And I think what what we get from looking at that story is the understanding that like shame has an origin, but it's not God. Shame doesn't originate in God's voice. Shame originates in voices who say they're speaking for God. And that's very mm-hmm. different. I think that when these external voices enter into our psyche, into our bodies, into our beings that say, tell us who we are, that is often where that enters in, where we're like, something's like we're bad, something's wrong with us. There are parts of ourselves that we cannot show other people because if we did, they would reject us. All of those sort of feelings, those originate from other voices. They don't originate from our own, the center of our own being our sort of pure state, and they don't, I believe, originate in the divine, but they often originate in people who say that they are representing the divine. Yeah, there are just so many different sources of shame from, you know, the media, I mean, in general, but even just within the context of sex and sexuality from school and sex education and language and the words that we use, if you think about the slang words we use, you know, don't be a all these uh, million things, to, let alone the media and you know music lyrics or the movies or the magazine ads that you don't look like. And it seems like through all of this, there are so many different mixed sources of shame that I think a lot of people can relate to listening to this interview, whether or not they identify as being religious. But I also wanted to point out that even if people don't identify as being religious, there's also probably a a very strong possibility that they have been influenced by certain types of, you know, religious shame or these sources you're referring to who pretend to be speaking that, that voice, but that are really just kind of a shameful bastard snake who, I don't know if I, I I don't know if I can use that word, jackass snake who is like getting in other people's issues and you know contorting things but in the u.s somebody who i don't identify as religious but i definitely had a ton of religious influence growing up both subtle and kind of known and unknown and then at the same time even for people who think that they didn't have any i i like to point out that our dollar bill has the words in God we trust printed across it. So if you, for example, were raised in the United States, there's a lot going on there that you, you know, you might not be aware of. And yeah, I could go on forever, but yeah. And it seems as though going off of what you were saying that them being naked was something that was natural and was comfortable. And it was only until it was brought to their attention in a negative context from this other source that they were then meant to feel ashamed, but that wasn't their natural state. That was a contaminated state and their natural state was comfort in themselves and that authenticity. And I almost thought how it's kind of this metaphor where that is our natural state and these these clothes that we put on represent kind of these layers of, of shame and trying to hide ourselves because it feels like what shame does is it pulls us away from our natural state and our authenticity and it forces us to try and hide who we are because of that other voice and we think that we need to change or we need to hide that part of ourselves. Well, it keeps us from the actual truth of who we are on both ends of the spectrum, meaning 
I think that not only does shame make me can sort of fill me with self-loathing and I feel like I'm just a piece of shit and I can't see the good in me, but also it prevents us from being honest and accurate about the parts of ourselves that are kind of shitty. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think shame can actually keep us from the confidence it takes to just very accurately say, I got that wrong, or that thing was my fault and I apologize. It takes a centeredness and a confidence to be very clear about what your part is in a conflict or in something that went wrong. And if you're filled with shame, it's very difficult to act, to accurately access that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so in being able to get back in touch with and reconnect with that authentic part of yourself, which includes perhaps some of these, you know, harder to accept parts of us, shame is not only what keeps us from accessing that, but those parts and that connection with them is what can help us overcome shame. Yeah. And I think also shame can be an incredible motivator. Like it can be an engine that drives us to try to prove those things right or try to prove those shaming messages wrong. But either way, the shame is what is driving us. I'm like, look, if it could be bottled as an energy source, I'm pretty sure it could replace fossil fuels. You know, it's like incredible. (laughs) I wish we could extract it and repurpose it. It would do us all a lot better. You spoke to the importance of origin stories. And so I would love to know a bit about your own origin story and the role that that has played in in the work that you do today. Specifically, uh, what? Like, help me with a starting point. Some of the the more formative experiences. And so whether that's one from, you know, where when you were younger to adulthood or a period of time later in life that you want to focus on, but you know, what some of the aha moments or the the questions or the struggles that kind of forced you to question the status quo and to make the changes in your own life that you're now sharing with, with the world? So I was raised in a very sectarian, fundamentalist form of Christianity called the Church of Christ, which I describe as like Baptist plus, you know, it's like Baptist, but worse. And there were just a ton, ton of messages in that church about gender in the sense that even women couldn't even pray out loud in front of men. If you were in a mixed group and there needed to be a prayer said, it was always a man. Women couldn't be pastors. They couldn't preach. They couldn't serve as elders in the church. They couldn't be ushers, worship. It went so far as to express itself in Our Sunday school teachers were women when we were growing up until we hit a certain age. And at 13, all of our Sunday school teachers had to be men because 13-year-old was boy was considered to have um, more authority than a grown woman. So it's a difficult, it was a constraining place to grow up when you happen to be a natural leader and intelligent woman, young woman. So constantly trying to figure out like what, because the thing about childhood is you you don't know yours is weird till you grow up and meet other people, right? So it's all I knew. I mean, we were only supposed to date other people in the Church of Christ. You were only really supposed to be close friends with people who were also in the Church of Christ. We went to church three times a week. And during the week, people from church were in our house having Bible study. It was an ensconcement in the system. And And I have to say, as a caveat, that there's something really beautiful about being raised that way. Not the ideology, but the community. So I was raised in a very tight-knit community. We knew what was going on in each other's lives. We showed up for each other. Anything was happening. Somebody would come and pray with you. They'd bring you food. I mean, say what you will about how destructive the ideology was. But my whole life, I've tried to find that kind of community again and never have. So that defined me in a lot of ways. But what would ha- what happened was 
what I experienced in the world as I got older and became a teenager started to contradict what I was told to believe was true. And I couldn't ignore my experience. Like I could not do it. And so I started questioning the church because for whatever reason, I couldn't question my experience. For example, we were taught like homosexuality is a sin and gay people are going to hell and all this stuff. And then like I go to high school and like the gay theater boys were literally the only people who gave me the time of day and they thought I was awesome and they loved me and thought I was funny. And I'm like, they really loved me and I loved them. And that very much complicated my understanding of the world. So the other thing the sort of concomitant thing to that is that I was a really sick kid. And so I had an autoimmune disorder and it caused fatty tissue to build up behind the bones of my face and it pushed my eyes out of my head so that you could see white all the way around the colored part of the eye. And um, like my eyes bulged out so much, my eyelids couldn't close. So it's very freakish looking. It's disturbing. And I looked like that from ages 12 to 16 until the bones in my face could stop growing and then they could do the surgeries to correct it. So I had this incredible experience of alienation and seeing the worst side of people, the cruelty, bullying, name calling. I just sort of observed myself and observed human beings from this place of alienation from the corner. And that really defined me in a lot of ways because then when they fixed my face and I looked like more normal, I immediately started getting tattooed. And this was in the mid eighties. It was very, very unusual in the mid eighties for teenage girls to get tattooed, but it was almost like self-determination in terms of saying like, even though you could accept me at this point, because I don't look like a freak, fuck you. I don't want to be part of your group. (laughs) It was sort of like, I'm not, I don't want to be in your tribe because you're you're not trustworthy, you know. So it gave me just, I think, a very keen sense of human beings. So all of those things together, I think, really defined me. So when I left the Church of Christ, I was so angry. I mean, I was so angry about it. When I started piecing it together and mm-hmm. realizing what I was told my whole life and just trusted there's a sense of betrayal when you realize this is not only bullshit, but it's harmful bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't have anything to do with Christianity for like 10 years. Honestly, I had so much anger about it. And yet wanting to still find a home and belonging, I realized, wait a minute, there are parts of my upbringing that I cherish I never got sick of Jesus, like for whatever reason, like, I mean, his people are fucked up, but like, I was still really into Jesus, even when I couldn't have anything to do with Christianity. And there were certain hymns that I clung to and loved. And I just eventually, I found my way back to Christianity, but in a very, very different form, a more liturgical, sacramental, progressive tradition, the Lutheran church that have female clergy and all that. And it felt like 10 times liberating to come back to my own, my sort of primal symbol system and practice on my own terms than it did to leave it to begin with. And so I eventually found myself in seminary, originally just to do academic work, but then I also got clean and sober in that time. I had a pretty serious drug and alcohol problem. And there was a friend of mine who was, and, and I did comedy <laughs> during that time. And um, a friend of mine who was also a recovering alcoholic and a comic was part of my 12-step group. He died by suicide. And um, all my friends just looked at me and they're like, well, you can do the funeral, right? And I hadn't been to seminary at that time. I was just like, literally the only religious person in my friend group. And so I said, okay. And I stood in front of this like packed downtown comedy club filled with PJ's friends comics and academics and queers and recovering alcoholics. And I just, I don't know, like giving his eulogy and planning that funeral. I just thought my people don't have a pastor. Like somebody should be these people's pastor. 
regardless of what they believe. And then I was like, oh, shit, I think that's me, you know? So my sort of, quote, call to ministry is very specific. Like, I wanted to be a pastor to my people. And so I ended up founding a church in Denver starting in 2008. And I served that church for 10 or 11 years. Very very wild sort of unruly congregation. <laughs> um, my dad describes it as like high church at the Star Wars cantina. Um, just like total freak show. But then like baby boomers and soccer moms and drag queens. And it just didn't make any sense. And it was just fucking perfect and glorious and lumpy. And I, um, I left the church about two and a half years ago because I, I just didn't want to like fuck it up by staying too long. And so I handed it off to some capable people. And I think one of the things I'm maybe proudest of is it's it's doing really well without me. I think that is the number one sign of, of you know, a job well done is setting it up so that it can continue what you've helped it grow and achieve through your work but so that it can kind of live on. And in those past couple of years since you've left the church and your work as a pastor, you have kind of embarked on an, a new chapter. What was the inspiration or calling or the experiences that inspired you in this new chapter? <laughs> oh, I wish I had like a really cool story. I don't... I. The weird thing about my public life, like my life as a public figure, as a writer and a speaker and whatnot, is I promise you, like, I did not vision board any of that shit with my girlfriends on New Year's Day. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have this, like, I didn't aspire to be an author. I was asked to write a book. I, I didn't aspire to be a public speaker people just kept asking me and at first I was like what why it's almost like it all is a result of people going like hey you want to do this and me being like yeah okay like I I wish I had a better story (laughs) but I guess I try to pay attention it's called an external calling like I'm I'm on my synod a synod is like a diocese right like we have a bishop and it's a I think 160 churches in the synod and I'm on the candidacy committee. So I'm on a committee of people who walk through the discernment process for people seeking to be ordained as pastors. And they're in this process for years. And we talk about like, do you have an, we talk about like internal calling and external calling. So an internal call would be like, I just feel like God wants me to do something, you know? And I'm like, I don't know how much I trust that. (laughs) There's a million ways that our egos can sort of, you know, manufacture what we want to be true. And in terms of like, quote, God calling us to this thing, but we can pay attention to our, our lives in a really deep way to see what is the world sort of in the people in our lives or institutions sort of asking of us, you know? Mm-hmm. I guess I try and trust that a little more. Like, here's an example. I During Advent, I ended up doing these Instagram Advent prayer services, like 15 minutes long, just from my living room. And I didn't think, you know what I want to do? You know what I would like is to do this thing. Like, what happened, honestly, is that the night RBG died, I always had these follow-up chats with the guests on my podcast. So the podcast will come out Tuesday. And on Friday, I'd have a follow-up chat with them for like half an hour on Instagram Live. Usually like 100 people would, 150 people maybe would tune in. And I had one of those scheduled the night RBG died and not with a like famous person or anything. And as soon as I signed on to have this follow-up chat with my podcast guest, like almost a thousand people immediately tuned in. And in the comments, they said, oh, we're so glad. Please tell us, please 
like say a prayer for us? What are we going to do? Like, can you just pastor us right now? You know, and I'm like, whoa, what? So when I did those Instagram services, you know, maybe 1,200 people would tune in live, but people would watch it. Like 50,000 people would watch it by the end of the week. Like people really wanted it, but I didn't do it because I aspired to be like an Instagram pastor or something. I just like tried to listen. And it sounds like that external calling was other people showing you their need. And like you said, when you were giving that eulogy in front of, you know, your friends saying, recognizing these people need a pastor and they need somebody and it appears as though I might be that person. And if they're not going to find it anywhere else, then that is my calling is to step in. And the internal part for me is different. It's not like I just, you know, I'm super close to God and I just, I feel like God just really is asking me to do something. I don't even... I am unsure what that experience would be like, but it's not one I particularly trust when people talk like that. But for me, there is an internal aspect to it, but it's always like, what is my own need? Because another example is like when the pandemic started, I wrote, I wrote some prayers one Sunday and put them up and people loved them. And they're like, Oh, thank you. Feels like you crawl into my head and just say what I don't have words for. Thank you. You know, And then I was like, I'll try and write these each week, you know, not knowing that like 10 months later, we'd still be in it. But again, I didn't, I didn't like fancy myself. I never wrote prayers before. That's not like what I'm known for. It just happened because it's what it's, it was two things. It felt like what people needed, but it was what I needed. And so when I sit down on Sundays to write them, a few things happen. One, I try to get really still and I try and really check in with what is going on inside of me. Like, what are the things that have been sort of operative emotionally during the week for me that I have not felt like I could really share? And what are my longings? And what are my fears? And what are my hopes? You know, like, I try to just get as honest as I possibly can when I write these prayers. But also, every week I tell myself, if there's nothing there, it's okay to not do it today. I would rather have a Sunday I don't publish anything than phone something in. So that helps to have that permission. But then inevitably, when I write these prayers that are really my own I mean, I I try and tune in to what's going on for other people too, but mostly me. And then I put them out and, oh, people are so grateful. You know, they're like, I think a lot of times people will say like, I can't have anything to do with Christianity, but you're you're like the only voice I trust in it (laughs) because it's just honest, I guess. So... And again, it was that need that you recognize in other people, but that you also had in yourself. You had said, you know, you didn't want anything to do with Christianity, but you did love Jesus and you couldn't get away from that. And so you were looking out at all of those people recognizing their need while it was the same within yourself. And, you know, putting these prayers out there, I think we as people so often are convinced that we are the only one, whether that's, you know, again, in a secretly egotistical way to think we're so creative and so unique in our struggle, but we think or worry that we're the only one with a certain problem or struggle or doubt or or question. And the fact is, you've learned this through putting it out there that so many other people are there worrying, doubting, questioning the same thing and waiting to have the opportunity to start this conversation about it. And so I also see that, you know, you and I in some ways responded to a similar external calling and with your book, Shameless, seeing the need for that. And my work with BBXX came from, again, my own need for better information and to know that sex and sexuality and relationships in general don't have to be this sad, dark, confusing place and that we all do have these same questions. And through putting it out there was able to recognize that external need in so many other people as well. And so it's been really interesting to see that and feel that parallel between us as well. And so in, in kind of speaking to that 
transitioning into sex, sexuality, and, and spirituality, how would you describe the relationship between sexuality and spirituality? I think they, they have to do with connection in a way that is like holy and ca- or can be holy, that we often lack really accurate language for either because there's something mysterious within it. I think both can cause healing or cause harm in really powerful ways because they both expose so much surface area of ourselves, you know. You mentioned connection there, and in your book, you talk about how some people see sex and sexuality as competition for religion in this case. I'll refrain from using spirituality, which isn't necessarily religious, because in some ways it can provide some of the same things that people look to religion for, that connection, that intimacy, the relief, healing. But again, both of these things, you know, religion sex can also be, like you mentioned, source of harm, pain, shame, confusion. How would you describe that really complicated view of seeing sex as competition for religion? That whole idea actually came from my boyfriend, who's a total heathen, not Christian. But what happened was when I was ordained, I mean, even though I was ordained in like this really sort of progressive Christian tradition. I had to sign a document that said that I would, that I promised to be faithful in marriage or celibate in singleness. And I didn't think much of it. I'm ashamed to say I did not really think much about that document because I was, I was married and uh, monogamous at the time. But I was in this very lonely marriage that lacked every form of intimacy you can imagine, like with a really good man. Like we were Mm -hmm. roommates who co-parented, but part of me was just dead. I mean. Did you recognize that at the time or? Yeah, it was my great sadness. I mean, there's something very sad about being like, I, my marriage isn't bad enough to leave it. And I think in a sense, because some people, you know, think, well, this is what marriage is. Yeah. And so maybe they recognize it in some sense, but don't necessarily think there's another option at the same time. So I'm curious where you were and kind of if you would offer any perspective to somebody else who might be in a similar situation. We got along just fine. There was just this incredible vacant thing. I had this sort of low-level contempt for him, for the fact that I was so alone intellectually, emotionally, sexually. But he's a great guy, (laughs) you know, like a great dad and a really good person. So it's just complicated. Yeah, a great person, just not a fit for you two as people together. No, yeah. So... It's interesting because I was so shut down sexually that I came off as like prudish because I couldn't be around any conversations about sex. And I did not feel comfortable even when somebody made like an off-color joke that Mm -hmm. had a sexual connotation to it. It made me uncomfortable. And it was because I was starving And like, it was easier for me to just not ever think about it or be around conversations about it than to really deal with the fact that I was so sad about having this part of myself unexpressed and being in a sexless marriage. And I had shame about that too, you know, it's not very, it's just not like inspiring, you know, to know about someone, you know, it's just, I don't know. Anyway, so we went through a very amicable divorce like no lawyers or anything like that and I I had this boyfriend in like 93 94 who I was just madly in love with and who just broke my heart and um but who I had that great sort of energy with 
And I would think about him a lot, actually. And I was in a coffee shop and I bumped into his old roommate. <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, I just saw Eric. And he's like, he's divorced. And, and I said, yeah, me too. And he goes, you guys should have dinner. And I went immediately. I was like, yes, we should have dinner. And so <laughs> we, uh, been, we've been together since then. That was um, early August 2016 since we had dinner and uh but i we were together for a couple of weeks and just had just amazing amazing time and like i did have that connection with him and it was it felt like an exfoliation of my whole spirit to have sex again and to feel connected to that part of me and that part of someone else and but then i had to go on tour cuz I, I i had a i had to go to uk i had to support the UK in the German edition of my last book. So I was in the UK and in, in Germany for like three weeks on tour right after this. And my head's like swirling, you know, I'm like, Oh my God, like it was incredible. And I was texting him every day. And, um, and I just thought I was in London and I was like, hold on. Like, this is like super good for me. Like I feel softer I feel more open, more capable of experiencing life on life's terms. Why the fuck did the church make me sign something that says I wouldn't do this? How is it better for my congregation if I'm not getting laid? That makes no sense. And so I text him. I was like, hey, can you hop on the you know, Skype or whatever? And he goes, it's like five in the morning, but okay. So we, I, I just said, why do you feel like the church has tried to control sex for so long? And that's when he said, I always assumed that the church saw sex as its competition. And that is when I went, Oh, I'm writing a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am going to write a book. So that's where it came from. Again, you had kind of the extremes of you know, almost this oxymoron or this kind of contradiction of sex and what it stands for. Or I almost, you know, wonder if it's somehow a, a complementation because, you know, anything in excess or, or without enough can be something completely different. And the same happens with religion, right? It's meant to be community and love and represent all these things and forgiveness when at the same time, it's the source of, you know, more violence and death than than anything else. And, you know, sex can be intimacy and love, or it can be abuse and abuse of power and all these other things. And in the book, you talked about this oxymoronic contradiction, but perhaps complementation of sex in this metaphor, insight yet confusion, connection yet alienation. Would you kind of talk a bit more about that to help people understand at the same time how when we're talking about sex, sexuality, or religion, any of these terms, there is a whole spectrum and a whole perspective through which it changes the entire context and conversation and meaning. I have this Latin phrase tattooed on my wrist, which is simul justus et peccator, which is something Martin Luther said, which is that we're all simultaneously sinner and saint, like 100% of both all the time. And that paradox of the human being is fully expressed in sex. It can be revelatory, it can be boring, it can be an aspect of human flourishing or an aspect of human degradation. It can be so many things, you know, so because human beings can be all those things and it's this sort of deep, mysterious thing within us. And so it can express either of those things. It's not just one thing. So it can be the best thing you can do or the most dangerous thing you undertake. As well, along that spectrum or in the context of sinner and saint, one gives perspective to the other. And with the lack of one, the other has no context or perspective on which to measure itself. 
So I have I kind of some more, they're not rapid fire questions in any way, but just kind of a, a series of questions uh, that I wanted to kind of get your input on or terms that, you know, I think are relevant or that you mentioned in your book. And one of those is sexual flourishing. And I just thought it was such a beautiful term and meaning. And again, this is something that is not necessarily restricted to religion in any way. It's just this kind of beautiful concept that can transcend all areas of life and that there is a need for in people and communities of all kinds. How would you describe what that means? I think it just means, I mean, this feels like the easy way out. It means something different to each person. And I think in order for it to be flourishing, it has to be what is right and good for the individual and for any of their partners. So for some people that could be BDSM. That is how they flourish sexually. You know, for some people, it's like decades of monogamy exploring sex with one other person. This is why I get so angry when Christians are like, the only way to be pleasing to God is if you are a cisgender, heterosexual Christian who is a virgin when they marry and never masturbates and never looks at porn and always only has this one partner and then has Christian babies, you know, <laughs> I'm like, uh, I don't know, like humanity is so wildly diverse that if we believe God created humanity, it just doesn't feel logical to think God created humanity in this mind-blowing diversity, but is only pleased with one type of person. That's not a description of the kind of person who's like pleasing to God. That's just a description of a certain type of person. But to then say, everybody has to become like them in order, you know, for it to be healthy sexuality, I think is really damaging. I am very naturally monogamous, like I'm, I'm just truly wired that way. But I think it's dangerous if I then assume that it's the only good and healthy expression of human sexuality. It just happens to be my expression. And so kind of what helps people get in touch with who they are? And, you know, as I feel and at BBXX, we talk about all the time, kind of everything begins with the self and the connection to the other begins with the self. So sexual flourishing, perhaps being practices or a lifestyle or beliefs that help you understand and connect with yourself and then live in a way that feels authentic to that self while creating a space and cultivating connection with another or sexual flourishing could be only with, you know, yourself and with however many others as you like. But that concept of kind of perhaps what that that represents. And I just love the word flourishing and, and that kind of metaphor with, you know, needing to have the healthy soil and knowledge and insight and understanding in which to plant a seed and to be able to cultivate through that learning and exploration and understanding further through which that cultivation then can then grow and thrive. And that also represents, you know, spreading itself and becoming more than one in a beautiful kind of continuation of that metaphor. I tell the story in the book about when my daughter was 17 and told me she was having sex with her boyfriend and I had to like, take a few beats and say to myself, what is the first thing I want my daughter to hear her mother say when she finds out she's sexually active? I didn't want it to be fear, control, shame. I said, I want you to love sex. <laughs> like That's the first thing I said. I want you to love it. I want it to be this amazing part of your life. And so you need to figure out your own 
sexual response system and what you like. And then you need to be able to communicate that with your partner. If you develop that, it will serve you your whole life. And then I was like, also, I want you to pee afterwards because mommy doesn't want you to get a UTI. So like, you know, there was some common sense stuff too. But to me, that's a message that allows our young people to step into sexual flourishing. And it's interesting to think about because I think on paper and, you know, particularly perhaps young people when they're, I want to say confused, I wish they were less confused, but I still assume that all young people are generally pretty confused in the beginning of their their sexual experiences. But it's easy to say like, oh, I love sex, but as, as a concept, what culture has told you that you're supposed to love it, but what does that even mean? It's not loving the concept, it's loving what it stands for for you and what it brings to you. And sometimes it helps you love another person. Sometimes it's important too that it helps create more love within yourself. It should not be a behavior that, you know, brings shame or negative feelings towards yourself. So cultivating love or as we talk about at BBXX intimacy and that closeness and connection within yourself and to the other person. And whether that is a partner or multiple partners or somebody you hardly know, you can still have respect and intimacy and connection. And those I feel are important ingredients. And again, that can be a brief, I think people think, oh, it stands for this deep concept in these, you know, rules, but no, it's all very flexible and can look different for each person or with each different person. But those core kind of ingredients are always things that will help that process of flourishing. I think also my pastoral compassion for other humans has now extended to, I want them to have really good sex. <laughs> like, I do, like whatever that means for them. I want them to be unselfconscious in their bodies and to give and receive pleasure and to be able to sort of be transported in the act and yet fully, totally present in the moment. And I want people to have good sex, whatever that means for them. I also need to note that while pastoral, for somebody who is a pastor in the church can be a clerical term. I would also like to note that it is also somebody who kind of keeps land and animals, but is of land. And in this case, we're talking about, you know, cultivation and growing and flourishing. And I just feel too appropriate. Another thing that, that came up in the book was our complicated relationship to pleasure. You told, you know, this crazy story about your, was it your grandmother? These these diet aids that there were back in the day. But again, this kind of contradictory, unhealthy relationship that comes with restricting ourselves from something we need or want. But at the same time, obviously, without some of that in moderation, you know, everything would be in excess. But somewhat objectively complicated relationship we have with pleasure, but not just within the context of sex. Right. Also with food. So that story is like, I would watch her put a little step stool up to the refrigerator and reach on top and get down what looked like a box of caramels, you know, and unwrap the little crinkly cellophane and pop one in her mouth and then put it back. And I was like, oh my God, my grandma is not sharing candy with me. Like what kind of monster is she? And, um, my mom's like, that's not candy. It's a diet aid. And it was actually called, they took it off the market, as you can imagine. It's called AIDS Dietary Candies. You can see the like old commercials on YouTube. They're like, lose weight with the AIDS diet. It's like, yeah, they took those off the market. But anyway, when I looked into it, I realized the active ingredient in this diet aid was benzocaine. So looked like candy, tasted like aura gel. It would literally, it was an anesthetic that you, to, in your mouth, so that it would numb your taste buds. And <laughs> there's a line my editor insisted on removing 
from the book, which I described it. I described it as the clitorectomy of food. <laughs> so just terrified of experience, experiencing pleasure and going overboard with it, you know. And in a way that is, you know, what this messaging tries to convince people to do or what we sometimes, you know, with or without religious influence or as we talked about, there are so many sources of, of shame and sexual shame. You know, people often do try to essentially numb their feelings or desires or their voice in some way. Right. The point I tried to make in that chapter was also about pornography because I just am not interested in shaming people for consuming pornography. It doesn't interest me. I find that people's consumption of pornography brings so much shame to them anyway that I think it's like problematic. And so the point I was trying to make is that human beings have had sweets as part of their diet forever. Like it used to be just honey, dried fruit, things like this. But now with high fructose corn syrup, there is, it is highly concentrated and readily available in a way that sweets weren't when we were like hunter gatherers, right? What happens is I think that because it's so concentrated and highly available, we actually experience less pleasure from it. You cannot appreciate the sweetness of an apple after you drink 32 ounces of Mountain Dew. An apple is no longer sweet. And so I make the argument that same with, you know, there's nothing wrong with the fact that we want sweets and they're pleasurable to eat, but there are health hazards to the way our diet is now. So there's nothing wrong with the fact that our bodies have a response to erotic imagery. Human beings have been creating erotic imagery since we could scratch it inside cave walls. And the fact that our bodies respond to it is an empathic response. There's nothing wrong with that. But can you appreciate the pleasure of your middle-aged lover's body after you've streamed two hours of internet pornography where you have these impossibly perfect, totally waxed, nubile <laughs> bodies, you know, having all sorts of things done to them and them being like, this is the best thing in the world, right? Obviously, there's issues of justice to be addressed in the pornography industry. So I'm not saying, not like addressing that particularly. But I think that's a more nuanced way to talk about how we experience pleasure and constriction or restriction than just saying it's bad or it's wrong. You kind of briefly touched on some of the ethical issues and, you know, knowing whether or not the candy you're consuming is is ethically made and most of it is not and knowing where it came from and the process behind it and the process itself and, and the people involved. Because there is erotica and pornography that is created is more ethical, ethically created and sourced than others. Yeah, and sadly, most of it is with the clothing industry and a lot of every industry that makes a lot of money, frankly. And as you touched on with that metaphor, it can be something toxic. And, you know, we can develop a toxic relationship with that commodity, be what it may, and it can change the way we respond to things, our sugar tolerance or our tolerance for other things change the way we interpret our the way we feel about ourselves, the way our body reacts to things, it can, all of these things can create toxic circumstances and not necessarily toxic people, but circumstances that change perhaps or influence that, that person and, and create more of a, a toxic or are influenced by a toxic system. Our relationship to pleasure is, is complicated. You mentioned this earlier and this was kind of, I think, one of my favorite recurring messages from your book. And again, as somebody who doesn't identify as being religious, I just loved this point that you made that God, in this case, in, in your book, is not running a crazy rat experimentation where he set up all these 
toxic circumstances and situations and tests so that he can then make you, he or she, you know, can then make you feel bad about them. That is one interpretation, but it is not yours, nor is it one that is feasible or healthy for most people to exist within. Could you just elaborate a bit on that concept of how life and faith and, you know, at least for you, your religion is not a test? (laughs) Well, I think that human beings have a very, um, or in our culture, have this very underdeveloped sense of grace. And so everything is just a a punishment and reward system to us in a way that keeps us scurrying for worthiness points. I actually think life is actually about grace and forgiveness. I like, I think the very best things are just fucking free. You don't have to, you don't have to earn them. You can live in response to them, but we're in this, the great human worthiness competition extravaganza all the time in a way that I think really robs us of joy. And that focus again on the exterior and what we don't have versus what we do have or who we do need to become, not who we already are, being that source of shame as we talked about in the beginning and also pain and unnecessary suffering and and a deprivation of pleasure, which as you kind of referenced, can come from simple things and simple pleasures and focusing on what we already have and what we're starting with in this case within religion and having that love or acceptance from the beginning not needing to change and and depart from your authentic self to become and earn something that you should have been told that you had from the beginning totally i mean we're all sort of convicted of that distance between our ideal self and our actual self but like no one's become their ideal self i mean this that whole like never resting in satisfaction or joy because you're constantly striving to be some perfected version of yourself is just mm-hmm. robbery and that practice of convincing people that they need to be this other version forces them to shut down a part of who they are and in the process either ruins the person or ruins that mission in itself of creating this perfect community and perfect ideation. One or the other will fail. They're completely mutually exclusive. And so trying to create a more integrated and understanding, bringing it back to the beginning and, you know, how to be in touch with our authentic selves and live according to that and form our connections with that version of ourselves. You, in the book, mentioned, you know, we can only know and be known if we show the ways, if we show the ways that life has marked us. And you really talk about how these, you know, markings or these, these scars or these stories are what give us texture and what give, you know, something for people to to hold on to, to latch on to, to connect to, and the importance of sharing these stories or these scars, not because they define us, but as you say, because we have the power to define or redefine them. And so I'd love to just kind of close with speaking to the importance of, again, being in touch with that authentic side of ourselves and how both the positive and the negative, the struggles and sadness and the joys and happiness are all a part of that. I did a Q&A on Instagram yesterday and somebody was like, how did you become so so authentic? I'm like, <laughs> what an answer to that would even possibly sound like. I feel like I just, I'm such a odd combination of things and I have such an intensity to my personality that it's just not ever really felt like an option for me to try to pretend to be something I'm not. And it's like what you see is what you get. And so I think I just 
I think I want, I've always wanted to trust the love in my life. And I don't know how to do that if what they're loving isn't an actual, I'd rather just put it all out there, good and bad. And then the people who stick around, I trust that they're sticking around because they love all the parts, not just the parts I showed them because I thought those were the ones worthy to be loved. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, part of what, at least from hearing your stories, part of what stands out to me is where you learned some of this authenticity or, or filtering out and filtering out the, the criticism or, or these other people's views, what was, comes from your experiences as a child and being sick and these difficult extremely difficult experiences you had that were all a very important part of this process and recognizing, you know, this didn't necessarily come from nowhere. And again, that scar or that story is is a part of this. And I love how you mention you can't trust love if you know that what people are showing love to you for isn't actually an authentic part of you. And so it being, you know, having to give what you want to receive and that being such an important part of it. And thanks to the world changing today and the work of people like you, we are living in a place where that authenticity and and that, you know, as you mentioned, crazy mix of things, but beautiful mix of things and the, the non-traditional and the mixing up the status quo and all of that is becoming the new ideal. And so now the ideal, rather than being this impossible perfect, is being this authenticity. Yeah, which is its own trap. I mean, I'm like, oh God, what what happens when like being authentic is your brand? The fuck? Like, what do you, <laughs> that just feels like its own trap as well, but it's a preferable trap, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, is being this, I mean, authenticity too, if for, for better or worse, right? Because it's not all positive, but that being that exploration of both the positive and negative sides of ourselves and, and of others. And so being at least a version of ourselves that can cultivate that connection inside and with others. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to sharing more of your work with with our listeners. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime. If you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism. We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.